I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On today's podcast, author Garth Jones is back to talk about his new book, Homebrewed Vampire Bullets. My name is Justin Hamilton, and you're listening to Big Squid Presents Pass the Amel. Thanks for joining me for our latest episode of Pass the Amel. This time we're looking at Garth's work with his new book, Homebrewed Vampire Bullets. If you've enjoyed these episodes where we've been digging right into the exploitation genre, and I've really enjoyed it as well, I've learned a lot from this segment, uh, you would have a blast with his crazy novel. Like, it's insane. And in this interview, we're going to talk broadly about the love of the genre, the influences and where some of the story goes without giving away too much of the plot. I don't know if I could give away too much of the plot. There's so much going on. Uh, But rather than me describe the book for you, uh, this clip I'm about to play, which was uh, originally created as a pitch read, I think it kind of sums it up nicely. So have a listen to this. Remember when Aussies could take the piss out of ourselves? Someone needs to get a laugh out of the apocalypse. Let's go. Homebrewed Vampire Bullets takes place in a parallel Australia. Think Wake in Fright meets Dogs in Space meets Howling 3. It's 2016 and we're a republic. Ed Von Satan is the Barry McKenzie of pub rock, zombified by a bunyip. He hits the road with a girl band called Babylon. Turns out the gig's a ritual to summon the World Blaster, an interdimensional bastard who harvests planets for fuel. Homebrewed's a crazy road narrative, a mongrel punk beast embracing political satire, horror, knockabout black comedy, and a dimension-hopping psychedelic war story to boot. Homebrewed speaks to our current state. We're led by morons, assailed by crises in every direction. Into that mix are flung a seedy cast of miscreants, lunatics, and demagogues. The fate of everything is at stake, and we're going to need a pretty good laugh at this dumb planet's apocalypse. 
This is a fun book with lots of twists and turns, and it's got a Baroque Aussie language that just permeates every page, and it has a crazy over-the-top aesthetic. There are also QR codes littered throughout the book that, when you click on them, take you to some musical scores that have been created by Half Majesty. Uh, Have a little listen to this little grab of music. This will give you a bit of a flavour of the music that's out there that uh, accompanies this work. That's great, right? Like just kind of the perfect mood. And especially when you pair it with the book, it really adds a a texture to the reading experience. Um, I'll play you a second grab just before the interview. But if you'd like to check out more of that music, it's created by Half Majesty. And Half Majesty can be found on Twitter at Half Majesty. Or you can check out their whole score for the book at halfmajesty.com bandcamp.com. So what I'll do is I'll just play a little uh, more of that music and from there we will uh, segue into Garth and then I'll come back to have a quick chat with you about the rest of the week at the end of this podcast. classic podcast form we started talking and I thought fuck it let's uh let's start recording before we waste any of this uh you were talking yes. about the Sandman on Netflix which at this point and this podcast will be coming out in September so I'll be finished by then but at this point I've watched the first three episodes and the third episode uh had Joanna Constantine 
in Correct. it, not Constantine. Yep. Constantine. Constantine. Everyone should know that by now. Everyone should know that. It's only by been now. forty years. It's amazing how people are still angry about it. Uh, it, it, it seems to be uh, people are just as angry about it being pronounced Constantine as they are about their favourite fictional character not being a, a white cis male. Yes. Uh. <laughs> uh, They're going to be really upset with this. Yeah. Yeah. So what was uh, – I, I have to be honest, I've really quite enjoyed it. I, I think it's um, – the first episode is really strange because it's so faithful – to the comic, uh, which is great, yeah. But as a first episode of television, it's very weird because your protagonist doesn't do anything except pretty much sit in a glass bowl for yeah, three quarters the entire, of it. entirety of the show. Yeah, um, it's a, and it's a very strange way to start a TV series, but it made sense as a comic. I mean, that's from the books. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's pretty much beat for beat uh, yeah. as the original uh, comic was. I mean, yeah, I mean those. I came to the, uh, I think the, I got the graphic novel maybe when it came out. Right. The first collection was my introduction to it. And then I got through it, Sandman it, at uni. They had like the bound editions because it was yep. already finished by then. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's not fresh in my mind, but, you know, it was at a very sort of formative time where yeah, everything in the show is like adapted very faithfully. Yep. Uh, I mean, my... <laughs> My big beef was episode was it uh, was Hell episode three? No, that's episode four. That's four. the next one. Yeah, that, right. Anyway, yeah, there's just I think it's just mainly aesthetic choices that I've got issues with. Right. Um. You know, they've done a. I think cast the casting of Dreams great. I think the casting across the board's great. Uh. But I've just got production design issues that sort of take me out of it. And as I was saying before we started recording, uh, we're currently in Brisbane in a. Uh, short-term rental while we get our life together here again. Yeah. The TV we've got is just very average when it comes to projecting digital stuff. Right. <clears throat> Everything looks cheap and like a, right. like a uh, 3D model. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get that. So that Look, cools me out a bit, yeah. I have to be honest and say that my expectations have always been uh, pretty low, not even from any other uh, aspect or perspective other than how do you create the Sandman, which is pretty early on, a very DC uh, influenced it's in the universe. Uh, comic? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. you know you've got the Martian Manhunter turning up, you've got There's John Constantine. Yeah. yeah, you've got so much stuff that is uh, tied into DC cosmology. I was always a bit curious as to how they would kind of extricate that part of it when they were doing it as a series or a movie. Yes. I'm glad it's a series because I yeah. think as a movie... Our film would be terrible. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. You just wouldn't be able to get enough of what makes it wonderful in there. And in the process, you'd you'd be left... You know, they'd strip mine all of that and then mm. you'd just end up with a, a standard movie. And well, without like, without oh. spoiling anything, I'll, you, and you'll have seen it by the time this comes out, for anyone who's probably uh, cares, um, they do have, there are nods later in the season to like the, the DC universe, but right. you know, in a very winking, oblique sense. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah, and we know Neil Gaiman sort of come out and said that, yeah, it exists in all the, you know, the universes all inter, in, interrelate. Yeah. I think he said on Twitter. Yeah. And there's like, did you listen to him on Marin? No, no, Maybe. I can't. I can't do Marin anymore. That really brought me back to the game and fold, though, because, like, you know, he that was a delightful interview. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, because uh, he's had some bad press recently in some senses. Right. 
Uh, but yeah, yeah, really great if if you can stomach it. And that's <laughs> maybe a, a edit for you. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> if you can just give me his answers, that'd be fine. Uh, you know, it's it, it, he's been so hands on with it, and mm. uh, sometimes that's a bad thing. You know, uh, it, it can be a good thing, but it can also yeah. be a bad thing. I weirdly even though I love the book of Good Omens and uh, actually have a signed copy from Neil Gaiman, the, I couldn't get past the 15-minute mark with that. And Agreed. I just and I, Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was my mood or maybe my tastes have just changed, but there was yeah. just something that wasn't quite connecting with me. So I went into this with, I wouldn't say low expectations, but kind of no expectations. And yes, yeah. I, I've been enjoying it. Like, it, it, I haven't felt an urge to churn through it, but when it's suddenly like, oh, okay, because at the moment I'm, I'm watching a lot of quality television. Mm, you know, mm. I've got uh, For All Mankind, uh, I think uh, on this date is finishing today, their third Sorry. season. That's been great. Better Call Saul has been a masterpiece. Westworld has been a complete return to form and has been great. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows is f- as funny as ever. And so when you've got all of these things, it feels like it's the, the next rung yeah. down, but it's not. It's not the next rung down, like you're shitting on it. It's just that there's real quality happening, and mm. then you watch this and you go, "Oh, this is this is quite good." <laughs> and I think it's kind of easy to like. Uh, I know someone who thought it was dog shit, and. Uh, <laughs> Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that uh, by using the term dog shit, I am quite clearly referring to Ben Elwood. But uh, <laughs> but I think you have to divorce yourself from your expectations. Like, to, to be honest, in the, in the second episode, I thought the depiction of Cain wasn't how I had him sure. in my head. And the way I've had him in my head is from the Alan Moore Swamp Thing era. Oh, yes. Yep. I, I had him very much more acerbic and a lot more always kind of a bit aggro. And in this, he was kind of, in this episode anyway, he was a bit more buffoonery. Yeah, there is an aspect of tweeness to a lot of the characterizations that sort of do come from the books as well. (laughs) Yeah. You know, know, as a a product of something that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, and then to faithfully reproduce it in 2022 with a lot of that stuff still in place. Yeah. If your head's not there... It can feel anachronistic to a to a degree. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, they've said that they're trying to uh, th- their approach has been to uh, as if they are creating it in mm-hmm. modern times. So, but you know, there's still a bit of that. Uh, without giving too much <laughs> away, the thing about Lucifer, uh, which I have not been able to pick up from, I haven't watched much in the way of trailers. I think she looks wonderful. But one of the things that I was a bit worried about with Lucifer is he's really funny. And is he funny? Is Lucifer funny in this? It, it's, like a more, a, it's more of a glorified cameo. I mean, is it? Okay. They're sort of setting up for like the season of mists. Right. Uh, it's the, the episode sort of takes some uh, twists away from the comic, but um, yeah, not as acerbic. Um, right. You know, obviously there's a. A full range of people out there who are going to be upset that it's a woman, uh, but you know she, she's really formidable, um, and yeah, we know what's coming, so yeah. we just have to sort of wait and see. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a little bit more like planting uh, yes. the seed for future yeah. seasons. I thought uh, I was always a fan of Jenna Coleman in Doctor Who, and she was saddled with a a, 
a kind of a weird character where we were told she was important, her character, yes. and that's and, another character I think we'll see later on. Yeah, and, and I thought she was really up. good. Yeah, yeah she was I really mean, good. Credit, I'll say that. Yeah, I think it sets up. <clears throat> it, it's a really solid foundation. Yeah, for what's to come. Yeah, and it sounds like they're going to get the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so you know they've taken that swing. They've done that range of genres. Um, you know, some of it to my taste, they could have been as extreme as the books and gotten away with it, yeah. considering the format. But they have sort of sanitized a little bit of that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, there was. Yeah, I still saw some pretty violent scenes in Absolutely. that third episode yeah. with uh, Thewlis. So, you yeah. know, it's a it's a hard needle to thread, but um, yeah. I'm I'm glad it's out there. You it's know, right. uh, yeah. and I'm enjoying it. So, I'd prefer that it's good and people then go and find the graphic novels and. Yeah, yeah, go through the entire experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll say the Hob Gaddling episode is probably one of the most fun ones. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, um, great. Yeah, so that's a real, yeah, a real laugh, and it sets up a lot of good stuff as well. Okay, great. All right. Yeah. Uh, and before we get into your work, have you seen Prey? Yes. <laughs> I thought that was... My, my main criticism with Prey was that I was watching it at home. I would have been wrapped oh, if man, I paid money to see that been fantastic. Yeah, that was Perfect. my... Major, yeah, takeaway was like, why didn't you release this in a cinema? Oh, unbelievable, right? Like, it I mean, would have looked phenomenal. Shit TV aside, it also sort of, yeah, you know, lent at that sheen that sort of takes me away from it. But yeah, like, just what a what an excellent yeah. <laughs> reimagining. And yeah. the design of the alien, yeah, the design of the Predator was just, you know, next level as well. Yeah. Uh, the performances were, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Did you ever watch yeah. Legion? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I thought she was great on that yeah. as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My expectations were pretty high, and they were equaled, if not. Yeah. Exceeded. Uh, well, I, I've never like I like the original Predator film, and then to be honest, I just but I don't really care about Predator. So, mm. but I I saw the premise, and I saw it was Amber Mid Thunder, and I saw the first image, and I thought, oh, that all looks quite tasty. I'll give it a go, and. It was fantastic. I was at the pub with a mate on last Friday night when it came out, and I actually said to me, oh, said to him, oh, shit, Pre- praise out. I've got to go home. Yeah. <laughs> Did he understand? Did he get he it? He did understand. He'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I will re- it's a top three Predator film now. You know, yeah. I think it's probably the second best one. I do have a soft spot for Predator 2 because I had the Dark Horse comics when they were – Right. When I couldn't watch the movie. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, they were quite good. The Dark Horse kind of knew – what they were doing they've oh, always been it, quite good there was actually a there was one that was drawn by evan dawkin yeah. um that actually was set on the indian reservation it was like an army base oh right situation it's like a navajo guy takes on the yeah. predator in the current day so yeah they set up a lot of the concepts yeah in the 90s like lots of yeah. good stuff but yeah dark horse underrated with a with a licensed uh character yes did you ever see the predator the shane black yeah yeah nah nah <laughs> Enough said. It was um, an interesting experience, that film. Mm, Yes. Yeah. I think they've made the right decision here by going back to the, you know, the roots of the characters and just. And once you take credits out, 90 minutes or, you know, if you sit to the end of the, you know, the little illustrations, 92 minutes, you know, and doesn't waste any time. Yep. It's fantastic. Yeah. Everyone watch it. Yeah. Funnily enough, uh, I, I did not get in touch with Garth to talk about other people's work. We are actually <laughs> here to talk about his work. He has released the first volume of Homebrewed Vampire Bullets. And uh, I guess... It'll be up for, sorry, it'll be up for pre-orders when this comes out, I think. 
Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So this is coming out early September. This is the, yeah, cool. The book comes out on Halloween, the first volume. Oh, great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All so uh, before we kind of get into the book, uh, what was your uh, introduction to the exploitation genre? Because we kind of talked about it, but, uh, and, you know, your tastes, etc. But what was the first piece of uh, the, that genre that you came across and appealed to you? Um, well, I grew up in Broken Hill in Western New South Wales in, the, you know, first memories of sort of the early 80s. Yeah. Where we uh, lived across the road from a roo shooter, yeah, who'd come home every day with a, a ute load of headless kangaroos and Jesus. park across the road, <laughs> right? Just as we were going, you know, going out to get the bus to school in the morning, right? Uh, so you know, the environment that we I grew up in was like it felt like we're on a film set, and it was sort of innate to your understanding by the time you were sort of like seven or eight that actually you are on a film set because Mad Max, Razorback, Mad Max Two. You know, all these like seminal exploitation flicks are being made. Yeah, in the backyard. I mean, yeah. Probably, I think I might have seen some of the set from Mad Max Two when I was very young in Silverton. Right. Yeah. Um, but never. I didn't see Mad Max until I was only twenty, I think. Um, but the first one I remember is Razorback because of that roo shooting <laughs> parallel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that might have been a VHS uh, that I wasn't allowed to watch for a long time, but, uh, you know, poverted down at the video vision around the corner. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, just that sense of landscape and, uh, you know, being in that environment really sort of set the mind off because, you know, when you're a kid growing up pre-internet in the middle of nowhere and all your culture comes via two channels on TV and what's at the video store, yeah. It sort of gets immersive and, you know, that's your understanding of the world. Yeah. Razorback was my introduction to that world as well. And mm. uh, I could be remembering this mildly incorrectly, but I did see it at the cinema. Yeah. And I reckon mum won tickets to the Anne Wills preview. So it was actually a a, a, a mainstream. Yeah, yeah. It was a mainstream movie back then. Yeah. That's crazy, so, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so to to have it kind of you know shift into this uh, umbrella of of, of is such a funny thing to me because it was marketed as what was it? Yeah, Australian Jaws. Jaws. Australian Jaws. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Russell Mulcahy mm. at that point was a well known director for all of his uh, Duran Duran and Elton yeah, John film clips. Yeah, and then off to do Highlander. Yeah. Very soon after that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's my, yeah. I'm fairly sure that's the introduction. And then it was, you know, we just sort of, uh, yeah, existed in that bubble. And uh, it didn't really come back to it until I started working with Umbrella Entertainment and right. working on all those titles and actually getting a chance to go through and actually, uh, you know, uh, sort of, um, I guess, you know, bathe myself in all the lunacy. Yeah. And is that part of the appeal is it kind of reminds you of uh, where you grew up? Is that kind of the innate way that you got in or was there well, something about a, the storytelling that uh, appealed? I think at the, at the sort of, um, at the very, very sort of primal level, it's definitely a connection to that landscape and environment uh, yeah. that a lot of these, this, these things are made in. Um, like, you know, I still crave desert heat and, you know, red dirt. Yeah. Although we've been in Auckland for six months and it's been rain and <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, rain and more rain. Um, yeah, I, that. But yeah, I mean, then the stories, you know, the the sort of um, you know the transgression, 
the sort of no holds barred as- aspects of a lot of these things where they were just like, well, fuck it, let's just go and do it. Yeah. And like, you know, someone might die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, Tarantino uh, says that he coined the term Ozploitation. Is that correct? I think it's uh, – this is um, from Mark Hartley's Not Quite Hollywood, isn't it, where he's yeah. Yeah, uh, discussing it. I mean, it was the Australian New Wave was what what it was called right. at the time. It was sort of like that, uh, you know, like Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma and all the rest going to school together, film yeah. school together. Uh, because basically there was – after World War II, we had no film industry. Yeah. Uh, which was probably good because a lot of the films before World War II were just super racist. Right. And, yeah. I mean, there's a guy called Charles Shawbell who did like a whole bunch of films about, you know, settlers falling in love with natives. And I'm doing air quotes here and, yeah. you know, lots of that sort of gear. So it was probably good that our film industry died for 20, 25 years or so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was the Whitlam and Gorton governments that started funding yeah, uh, film make film school and film projects again in the early seventies, and the, yeah, it was called the Australian New Wave. And I guess there's you know parallel tiers. There's the sort of stuff that became exploitation, and then there's the sort of highbrow stuff like yeah. picnic and hanging rock, yeah, and the stuff that actually had ideas and was investigating our relationship to the past and our identity, and not yeah. just having boobs and big you know V8s and all the rest. Yeah, and and somehow some of those movies combining both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so funny. That's the secret. Yeah, the secret sauce, isn't it? Like, yeah. Can you get both? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the ingredients of your typical exploitation story is sex, horror, and action. And these are quite clearly topics that have had critics turning their noses up for a long time. I feel like that's changing a little bit in the current climate. Like, people aren't as dismissive of genre anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think film and television, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely, like, uh, we're sort of, you know, streaming and prestige television and sort of, you know, the variety of choice is sort of greater these days. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's something for everyone. Uh, but in the uh, in the world of letters, uh, I don't know that this attitude's the same. Right. Uh, this, uh, and I mean, not surprised, um, this project I started four years ago and it started going out and getting shortlisted for things in 2020. Right. If we remember that very short, enjoyable year that that was. Yeah. Uh, a hell of a six weeks. Totally good one. Yeah. Uh, but, and a, a big shout out here to the Queensland Writers Centre who have been really, really supportive of the project. But um, once you get in front of Australian publishers, they're, yeah, they, the tastes are <laughs> yeah. more rarefied. They're not, they're not looking for gear that, you know, tracks in the vernacular or, yeah, you know, of course. Any, any generic elements, I guess, is what you how you'd phrase it. You, it seems like you have to probably make it a hit for them to then take you on board, rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I mean these these books, I had a specific vision for how they'd be presented, and no one would do that without a track record, anyway. Right, uh, of course, it's just not going to happen. Uh, so yeah, I think definitely film and television projects, but you're. There's not much adventure out there in, in the literary world. Yeah. What are, what are they looking for? Tim Winton? Yeah. G'day, Tim. Uh, yeah, not his fault. <laughs> no. But, you know, there's. Um, I think, you know, the, you need to stick, you, stick to your lane and, like, you've got one genre that you can do at a time. Yeah. And you can't lean into sort of the more grotesque aspects of, like, you know, Australian culture or, you know, 
hang shit on people that might be in their worlds as sort of, you know, some of the, as these books progress, I get a bit shirty with, you know, the art world and things like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, they, yeah, I just think there's a, there's not a real taste for, it's, it's also, you know, again, like there's a, a whole variety of voices out there that definitely need to be heard, but yeah. I've got the luxury of being able to start my own imprint yeah, and just do it myself. Yeah. And it's heaps of fun anyway. So. <laughs> Yeah, 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 at least you get to control it as well. Well, um, So I want to talk about this first volume and I'm going to talk a little bit obliquely so I don't yeah. give too much away. Uh, but we follow very early on in the story the band Toxic Shock. Uh, I need to point out for everyone, Toxic Shock is spelled T-O-X-I-K-S-H-O-K-K. And that pretty much sums up the band. They are two umlauts. Two umlauts. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. So sorry for leaving that out. Yep. And uh, they're a sad band, uh, still kind of living the dream in their heads. And I was wondering, where did the inspiration for the band come from? Was it from a specific kind of band that you'd ever seen, or was it uh, a number of bands you've seen over the years? Uh, so I it might come as a surprise to you, but I was the only kid in year eight that was wearing cowboy boots and pirate blouses to the Amazing. band, the band, the shows that we were seeing at the time. Right. Yeah. At the YWCA, uh, they would have things called band frenzies. Right. That I'd draw the posters for, and that would be some pretty pretty great renderings of either chicks in bikinis, barbarians yep. with chicks in bikinis. Yep. Or chicks in bikinis with skulls and barbarians. Oh yeah, great, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, all the all the tropes. Yeah. Um, and the, the band frenzies were like pretty regular, and we'd have all the teen bands, but a funky rubber suit, all the local teen bands, I should say. So you can guess who yep. they were influenced by, can't you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dungeon, Fury, The Figs. Yeah. They're all they're all people roughly our age, and I have a distinct memory of one night um, at the local civic centre after a couple of these bands were on this bunch of dudes in their forties and fifties with like gray beards and like the cowboy hats and all, all the rest came up and they were called pot belly burning. Right. <laughs> and they sort of did like old school blues rock. Yeah. So a bunch of teenagers in like, you know, Reebok pumps, uh, not me obviously, but the other ones, uh, yep. you know, hockey jerseys and all the rest. And I was just like, that's, that stuck in my memory. I was like, well, what, <laughs> you know, they, those guys are lifers. Yeah. Turning up to like, you know, see, have, you know, 50 kids see them and just be bewildered by what the hell they were doing. Right. It wasn't Rage Against the Machine inspired rap rock. It wasn't yep. uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers inspired stuff. And it wasn't like Metallica inspired yep. stuff. Um, yeah. And that sort of, I think that was the genesis. It was just these dudes that are just still out there plugging away. Yeah. And then over the years, yeah, I've gotten more and more. You know, you see photos of people from what you know bands that you'd like in the eighties and nineties, and you're just like, "Holy shit!" You're still out there to playing to like a you know a festival crowd in the US, right? At midday, <laughs> you're still yeah. living the dream. Um, well, yeah. they are, aren't they? Like, they to still are extent, living the dream. Yeah. yeah, to some extent, I guess. I mean, it must be pseudo depressing to be like putting the banner up and like you know, do it going through the motions. Yeah, but there's something uh, delusional and sort of like romantic about it as well. Well, may, may, maybe it's not depressing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they're having a really good time. I'm in fucking warrant. Yeah, like there's there's a possibility, you know. Yeah. It's uh, I I I don't know. Like maybe I'm projecting how I'd feel, but I would definitely <laughs> feel like oh no, maybe it's time to give this away. But they must be still getting something out of it. And I feel like the band in the in the book are 
still true believers, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're do- doing their poppers and like, you know, driving their shitty old Bedford <laughs> from sm- small, thinly veiled town to small, thinly veiled town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was one thing else. Uh, years later, uh, my partner and I, um, we were talking about the book and she turns to me and says, I had a punk band called Toxic Shock Syndrome. Oh, really? At university. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this, these guys, I think I might have come up with it in Adelaide, like in right. sort of, you know, early 2000s. So, yeah, parallels. Uh, it's, it's funny. Where, isn't it? When, when your daughter gets older, when yeah. did you realise that you guys were uh, perfect for each other? Well, it all comes down to Toxic Shock. Here's my uh, photos and here's Daddy's, like, thinly veiled autobiography. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Uh, the story veers pretty wildly between the past and the present, which I think uh, gives it a, like a cinematic feel. It feels like it's bouncing back and forth between like two channels. And uh, was this part of the plan when you first began writing it, or was this something that kind of just naturally fell into place? Um, I can hear the Edgar Wright sort of uh, whip pan sound effects now when I read it. Yes, like yes. Like the sort of tonal shifts and sort of narrative, um, you know, tributaries and like, you know, uh, U-turns and all the rest. Uh, at the time I started the project, um, this was like 2018, I've properly gotten to gear with it. Yeah. And we found out we were going to have a little girl in October. <laughs> so I sat down the day after we'd gotten the news and I made a flowchart of yep. the plot which had been sort of gestating for years and years, but I'd just been too busy doing all the stuff in the book right? to actually get around to writing the book. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I made a flowchart of the plot that I then challenged myself to write a, one segment a day Yep. and see where it went. And then over the course of the last three and a half years with yep. like revisions, uh, you know, beta readers, feedback, all the rest, it's, been reconfigured into where it's ended up now. Okay. And, uh, you know, it didn't actually start with the Bunyip segment initially. Right. Uh, that was further back in the book as sort of a reveal. But, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that slowly started to make sense. And I also, re, you know, wrote another 10,000 words uh, late last year while it was in competition for a, uh, what was it, a publishable prize. Right, right. I... Uh, it, that's interesting to me because I feel like the, and we'll talk about the bunyip in a second, but it feels incredibly part of uh, the genre to have that happen so early on. Yes. Yeah. I thought we needed to, because then, you know, it, it's not necessarily a, a, a horror story. No. But I thought it was a fun place to start it in that action. And yeah. sort of also the, the mundanity of these guys and their sort of the flashbacks to, you know, their shit teenage. Yeah. Sort of uh, their beginnings, yeah. It's uh, it's it's like you're discovering their origins while no- finding out that they're about to go. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're in a lot of trouble at this yeah. precise moment. A hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah. Uh, how'd you go with the uh, beta readers? And can you explain that to people who might not know what that term is? Uh, yeah, uh, beta readers are people who come in and read your manuscripts and uh, sort of make suggestions that you're not necessarily tied to. Yeah. But- think that will help you sort of punch up what you've got and yeah. get it to a point where you can actually, you know, present it to publishers. Yeah. And did uh, you find it helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working with a guy called Josh Donnellan, who's a, a writer here in Brisbane. Yep. And, um, yeah, he, he was really helpful just, you know, 
the, 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 there's a band called Babylon, which is an old girl punk band yeah. in the in the story. And you know, the first volume is pretty dude heavy. And yeah. as but I think I'm pl- I do plant the seeds of like how important they become as a, we go through the book. Yes, through, through the narrative, uh, which is really important because I did. It's essentially a story about you know delusional blokes who are past their prime who need to get out of the way. Yeah, but yeah, the first volume can come on a bit strong in the sense of it just being these, you know, the guys who are still living their dream at, you know, 50. Right. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Josh's suggestion was great. And I sort of moved some of the stuff around Babylon around and added more at that yeah. point. And, yeah, it does feel more like we're seeding things now in the first volume. Yeah, great. Rather than just, like, being hit over the head with bad behaviour. Yeah, right. Is it, uh, what was the weirdest advice that you got? Um weirdest did anyone just kind of miss the point one of the discussions we had uh, (laughs) i I, i've I've asked heaps of people if like it was if you know the language is too much or if in terms of like using the australian you know the vernacular yeah if it's hard to get past as you know i've asked friends in america to read it (laughs) you know can you understand it even yeah Uh, so yeah i had had worries about the vernacular worry sometimes you know concerns about where the um whether the time the changes in the time frames were too confusing, yeah, just ironing that sort of thing out. Yeah, I look. It's it is kind of dense in the sense of all the vernacular that you use, especially even I'm across it and it's still yeah. having to get into the rhythm. But it's a little bit like reading anything that has a specific uh, point of view, which yeah. is you, you know, it's like you read the first couple of pages of a clockwork orange and you think how the fuck am i going to get through yeah, this absolutely, yeah. and then by the end you've worked out the rhythm of it and i think that's what happens with this it's like the first uh probably few uh uh probably the first few chapters i was like okay let's get into this and then i'd put it down and then i do something else and then i get back into it and then eventually it's it just kind of clicks and then you kind of can follow it Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Really, yeah. quite easily, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Someone did say, you know, mention like Irvine Welsh. Not that I'm making any comparison whatsoever to myself, yeah. but you know, like just the sort of, you know, the, once you're into sort of the rhythm of the language, yeah, it does. Yeah, make more sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's quite easy to follow, uh, yeah. but you just have to, you just have to unlock it, and once yep. you do, you'll be there. Uh, you've already brought up the bunyip, and it's interesting. Uh, the original bunyip myth, which I have to be honest, I was 
I kind of knew that the bunyip had been scary. And originally, it was a man-eating monster that lived in rivers, lakes, and swamps and used to hunt women and children to eat. And then by the 1800s, which I thought was uh, quite interesting, it had changed to being a plant eater and was a friendly creature in children's books. And it also became an insult, meaning imposter. Uh, How did that happen? Why did the bunyip myth get kind of turned into something that was lovable? And what inspired you to bring the bunyip back to its roots? You think it was the, the early settlers just going like, well, you can't have your fairy, you can't have your myth, your scary myth. We'll just yeah. uh, <clears throat> completely castrate it <laughs> from the outset. Yeah. Just, yeah, because like Indigenous people in Australia have so many cool monsters. that <laughs> Yeah. Like you check out Wikipedia and like there's at the top there's Drop Bear. Yeah. In terms of Australian monsters, you're like, no, fuck that. Yeah. But then there, yeah, there's some fascinating, you know, um, myths and creatures that have like not really been heavily sort of exposed in popular culture, I guess. Yeah. Um, I grew up going on lots of road trips, obviously, because we're in the middle of, you know, far western New South Wales and the Murray River, which is the river that, that sort of goes through the top of Victoria into South Australia, where it becomes yeah. the River Murray, uh, is sort of the home of the Bunyip myth, legend. Yeah. And it was sort of, you know, top of mind as a kid where a lot of these ideas probably sort of just got locked for a long time. Uh, you know, it was, it was just familiar to me as like something that would eat you if you went into a swamp. Yeah. Um, I don't think I had much, you know, understanding of any of the sort of changes in how the bunyip have been perceived since. Yeah. Uh, and we had like on those drives, you know, the Min Min Lights which is like a sort of um, visual phenomenon that looks like a UFO following yep. your car on a late night drive. Right. Uh, and, you know, got driving along the Murray, you know, the sort of the Bunyip terror, <laughs> all that yeah. stuff just really sort of, yeah, embedded deeply in the subconscious. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and then I may, you know, went back and researched it lightly because I wanted to sort of just make it into my predator to yeah. <laughs> jump back a bit. Uh, but I also added the... <clears throat> the kink of um, having the capable of turning people into zombies so he could have revenge on the colonial settlers. Yeah. And just murder some white people. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, the Australian uh, outback and uh, Australia in general has this great uh, capacity to easily blend sci fi and the occult, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just tailor made for it. And I'm surprised that it doesn't happen. Anywhere near as much as it should. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a side note, I did pitch this as a TV adaptation or film adaptation, thanks to Queensland Writers Centre again. Right. In May 2020, just yeah. when, <laughs> yeah. So again, not much appetite for something of this style, you know, style and tone, especially in the middle of a pandemic yeah. um, where you can't shoot anything. Yeah. yeah. It'll be, uh, it would make a Crazy fucking movie! And I was listening. Uh, I've got a script. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a spec script of the first uh, the first chapter. Yeah, I'm ready to go. It's ready to uh, go. Tell me more about and casting. And casting. <laughs> good good luck making sure that you get uh, that power as well. I look yeah, forward absolutely. to you being uh, having furious conversations with you when they've uh, <laughs> got the wrong person. Ruined it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about Ed von Satan. The uh, the the kind of almost the lead. Semi-protagonist. Yeah. He's um, a funny character. He is uh, the Barry McKenzie of rock and roll, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you might have to explain Barry McKenzie for people uh, overseas. That, 
Yeah, that was in the uh, one of the pictures I did. Uh, Barry McKenzie is like a character from the early 70s who's a uh, lecherous, um, well, yeah, Australian stereotype of that era. Yeah. Uh, who bombed around a bunch of films. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there were sort of the sexploitation films, I guess, to some extent too. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he's like Jack Thompson uh, in Double Denim with a yep. pickup from The Saints. Yeah. Uh, the Aussie punk band. Uh, he's... Um, Every overconfident mind bloke I grew up around, yeah, who have that gleam in their eye, but are just essentially a bit shit. Yeah, <laughs> just irreverent, uncouth, um, and permanently wasted. And he's also an actual rock and roll zombie. Yeah, he has an encounter with the bunyip, uh, but he's got some mystical protect- protection. Uh, that I'll leave <laughs> as a surprise to the reader. Yeah, it's funny the way that comes about <laughs> as well. Uh, he's a funny character. Like you kind of are rooting for him. He just keeps failing, but, you know, he fails into interesting places. And, uh, yeah, um, I think yeah, there's a monograph at the start of the book, uh, which is just a random tweet I saw, uh, which is uh, relating to characters as boring, being a voyeur to a bunch of sickos and dirtbags. That's good fiction. Yeah. And that's sort of the mission statement in reverse for this, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. he. Uh, I was kind of picturing... Uh, not necessarily looking like him, but an uncouth version of Kurt Russell in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, like a, I was going to say there's an aspect of Jack Burton there too. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, the kind of useless guy that still seems to be moving forward while everything else is falling yeah. apart around him. All my friends are going to have been zombified. I'm yeah. going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my, and uh, my yeah, unbeknownst to me, my, you know, pseudo-girlfriend is the one actually... <laughs> Resolving this. Yeah, sorting this all out. Mm. Uh, the story is uh, dialed up to the max with some uh, hilarious jokes, lots of jokes in there and uh, funny turns of phrases. Were there any ideas that you felt were too much or at least needed a bit more time to marinate before you unleashed them on the world? Uh, I guess the first the first draft of this, to some extent, started 10 years before I started writing the book. Yeah. Uh, around 2008. And all those ideas were awful, self-conscious, edgelord-style attempts at writing gonzo fiction. Right. So I've spared everyone all of that by coming yeah. back and yeah. finding a voice that I can actually call most uh, not my own, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah, so that draft has been deleted from every possible, you know, place that could have been saved over the last 15 years. Yeah, you have uh, to get that out there, though. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you have to. Uh, people... I, I just, I just remember the uh, the document that it was sitting in, uh, and going through it one day, I was like, "No, you can take the names that you've written. You, the names you've come up with are good. Yeah, uh, the character names are cool. Uh, everything yeah. else is gonna, yeah, be completely incinerated. Uh, yeah, but that's alright. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just say you need to know. Yeah, and make that decision, and not yeah, embarrass yourself too much. Uh, but the the first volume is a bit of a, you know, it's not. Uh, it's not a sanitized or real easy read, but yeah, things get more scatological and naughtier as things progress, I guess. Yeah. Um, I didn't think there was, I, I did trim a few things that were probably more just around language that six years ago would have been fine, but yeah, I'm talking about when I wrote one of the short stories for this in 2016, just stuff that didn't play as well. <clears throat> Now, yeah, well, yeah, like, you know, taken out of context, you'd be, you know, self cancelling, I guess. Right, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? It's the so I caught up with comedian Mickey D last night. I haven't yeah. seen Mickey for a while, and he has a 
photographic memory for pretty much everyone's career that he's been entwined with in the past, you know, two plus decades. Yeah. And we were discussing, uh, you know, how things have moved in, in stand-up uh, for better or worse, you know, mainly for better, I think. And he was just bringing up turns of phrases or throwaway jokes or references that when I was hearing them, I was equal parts hysterically laughing and also having to go outside and breathe into a paper bag yeah, because yeah. it it they were just terms or uh, topics that were fine, like were genuinely fine. And even though you were approaching them from a satirical point of view, out of context now, if someone if, you just if cut I'd and filmed that, it, cut and taste that bit, and oh, oh my god, lord, it's just too hard. Like you'd just be spending a lot of time. It's nerve wracking. It's nerve wracking. So yeah, I think they were the main. There's nothing uh, in terms of uh, raunch language, uh, violence, or like concepts that I really got rid of. Um, it was yeah. just, yeah, things I looked at, you know, yeah, just with a bit of like more of a sensitive eye. Yeah. Because, you know, also the dude who wrote this four years ago uh, is now a dad of a nearly four year old. And, yeah. and a lot of stuff's changed. So, yeah. I'm like, oh, Flash forward to her potentially reading this. Um, well, that's funny. Just, that, you know, give a little bit of a, a polish to this. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's the uh, Steven Spielberg uh, story about Close Encounters because we're, we're going to be – that. this might already have been up uh, by the time this uh, podcast is released, but that was going to be our first uh, Space Podacy. So I rewatched that and did some research. And, you know, at the end of that, Richard – Dreyfus leaves his family behind and gets on a UFO. And uh, Spielberg said, I wrote that before I had a family. Yeah. He, he, that's not how that movie ends now. I'm going with the aliens. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, that's, you know, as I said, like the band, the, um, the, the band Babylon definitely has been punched up a lot. Thanks to that. Um, yeah. For notes and just like, you know, sort of balancing the narrative out. Yeah. Into a, <clears throat> something. Cause I, you know, part of my ethos, I guess I, I, the, the genre I've put this in for like um, hashtag purpose and all the rest is mongrel punk. Right. And, you know, which sort of covers the gamut of the, the occult, the sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the rest. Yeah. But, um, sorry, I lost my thread. Um, my- yeah. But you were just talking about, uh, you know, punching up the story and making sure yeah, that, yeah. you know, even though it's a parody with these guys, you're evening it yeah, out. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, I always thought, oh, look, I don't want to go into, you know, I'm not going to lean heavily into like being too um, ideological, dogmatic, you know, yeah. pushing themes. But there are definite themes in there. Yeah. And, you know, you, although it's not, it's completely irreverent and doesn't take itself seriously, there, there's, you know, ideas in there I'm actually serious about, you know, yeah. exploring. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, that's always the difficult thing with comedy is that there is a, a way to get a point across and you have to be funny and you have to also make certain that you're not glib in a way that undercuts the initial point while never forgetting that your job is to make people laugh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. So, yeah. Jump, through, jump through all these hoops for me for this yeah. uh, 30 second gag. And try not to bash people over the heads with it, too. Yeah. Like. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, 
part of the fun of this volume is that it, it has news reports, album reviews, illustrations, QR codes that lead to fictional TV characters and more. Uh, they also play heavily with the font for the band uh, and uh, their names, certain characters like Johnny Platinum, etc. Uh, what was the most fun part of it to create? What was the part that you almost had to make sure you have to focus because you could do too much of it because you're enjoying it so much? Um, you've got a copy that is one remove from the probably the final version. Oh right, okay. So yep. I took the three main, well, the three uh, volumes and sat them next to each other, and then sort of cross pollinated and worked out <clears throat> a bunch of other graphic things I could do. Yep. To add and sort of uh, just tailor or make sense of some of the ch- uh, of the uh, chapters as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I just enjoy like the world building aspect of it is just the the delight, I guess. Yep. Um, I've always, you know. On Twitter, at one stage when I had plenty of time, you know, just you know, doing photoshops, building up, <clears throat> you know, ridiculous band posters and all the rest, um, <clears throat> coming up with things that probably like thirty people saw, but with yeah. just a bunch of fun. Uh, but for this, yeah, the opportunity just to build out this world of you know, and you know, be pretty much to my whim how everything was presented. Yeah, uh, you know, the file photos of like the the billionaire Punter Grint. You know, yeah. lean into that. You know, the political satire, uh, and I, I guess I had illustration and the QR codes in mind at the point of maybe when I was thinking about releasing this sort of early last year. Yep, or getting towards that phase, and then you introduced me to Ryan Hughes's XX. Oh yeah, and that sort of emboldened me to go not as far as he goes in terms of like the typographic experiments, but there's moments later in, in the third volume, especially where it's like maybe comparable. Like I'm not as good a graphic designer as him by any yeah. means, but um, sort of, yeah, it gave me more confidence to just go and fuck around and, you know, do fun things with it. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, yeah as, a, as a lapse, I call myself a lapse graphic designer. I do still do graphic design, but like, I don't think it's what I do entirely. Right. Uh, it's super fun to just do that sort of self-indulgent stuff and then see where it, <clears throat> where it lands. Are you the model for most of the men that you then uh, change, you know, like turn them into <laughs> characters? But the reason I ask is yeah. because uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but uh, the David Bowie album Outside, which I think has yep. a real, like, I think it's a really fun album. I think it's got a sense of humour in it that a lot of people kind of yep. miss. But he's written, you know, like a cyberpunk uh, slash parody, you know, uh, detective story that's yep. in it, and he's he's the basis for all of the different characters from the from the six year old girl who's abducted to the you know right. the detective and stuff like that. So I was wondering uh, that that's what made me think not that you yep. were influenced by that, but I was looking at it going, wait a minute, is that Garth with dreads? You know, um, I will say that like maybe Garth circa two thousand and nine, yeah. <laughs> And yeah. Johnny Platinum is definitely someone else whose name I won't <laughs> bring up here, but like a very close friend. Uh, right. And I, I, you know, that was pretty much, those passages were pretty much written verbatim from memory, really. So, right. It was a good party. I've talked about it on here, but yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's but yeah, funny. That's, that's sort of the uh, inciting incident, I guess, or the sort of accidental inciting incident. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, 
otherwise, yeah, there are definitely one thing I did about nine drafts in was I decided to take all the names of actual people who have existed out of the book. Right. Yep. Because they're like this, there's it's set in the Republic of Australia. So there are, there are four previous, there's four Australian presidents and they were Bob Hawke, John Laws, Peter Brock, and the current one's David Boone. Right. Great. I got really scared. <laughs> yeah. And I also decided that like building that world entirely out with like characters that are mine yeah is more you know more interesting i think and you can yeah. sort of get those threads so a lot of the yeah a lot of the characters are sort of like modeled on you know mainly awful australian celebrities and media personalities yeah i've just hopefully changed the names enough that they don't resemble any person living or dead right um, sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. Especially- but yeah i enjoy the entire process like i like the detail of just like making things yeah, seem, seem seem as though they did exist. Like you know, just the verisimilitude of like you know, doing copyright lines and doing all the stupid little bits and pieces that no one will notice. Yeah, making uh, it as authentic as possible. It's uh, one of the things that I love about putting on stand-up shows is the adding the stuff that nobody notices, and then if if anyone does, it's like the best moment of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I've done album cover art. I've done a whole bunch of stuff for it, but like, it's just—it was just fun. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. to be to be honest, too, when I started it, I was doing it all on the sly, working for a regional newspaper. So, right. I, I, you know, I'd write in the morning for them, and then I just get another word tab up and write my stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so, no problem. What a relief. <laughs> Uh, a few more things on uh, the volume without getting too much into it. Uh, we bounce back uh, also to 1990 to Johnny, uh, the band Switchback, and the influence of Lefty Tomes found at the ABC. And I'm wondering, what would you be more proud of? Someone reporting on one of these bands as if they were real or a conservative politician using it as proof that the ABC is ruining the ordinary Australian? I think I'll take both. I mean, like... If anyone thought these dopey shits were actually <laughs> real people, <laughs> right? <laughs> if it was that convincing, sure. But I can also, you know, uh, former uh, arts minister or the guy who, you know, reduced all the budgets, Paul Fletcher. Yeah. Thinking, and by the way, Canberra's right, ABC is six six six. Yes. Which is great. Which is why yeah. I got set there. But yeah, if he thought there was a hell mouth there. Um, that's also fantastic. It'd be great. I, I would be quite uh, excited to see one of the bands reported as real. That would be my exciting. I mean, yeah, I mean, my the pitch for the TV version would have included, like, the end of the uh, Twin Peak Returns. We'd have fictional bands doing songs from the book. Oh, great, yeah. To not Maybe not necessarily every, every episode, but, yeah, put together bands with people I know and get them yeah. to perform as the bands oh, that that would be amazing like yeah, that would I mean, genuinely be amazing <laughs> and then release a uh, you know in in a perfect world you release a limited you know blood splattered vinyl yeah. i mean i'll tell you what's hard though and that's like getting any 40 plus former touring musician to do anything in the timelines you want them to <laughs> <laughs> yeah so as an adjunct to that i will say that though um my friend uh john shawk who uh plays as uh, a one-man synth experience called Half Majesty, is doing a score for this. Great. They're going to start to release in a, around the time this comes out, I guess. Um, but think more in the sort of direction of Near Dark, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, great. Um, 
epic prog rock sort of stuff. Yeah, amazing, amazing. <laughs> and that, that will come out as an EP via John's Bandcamp, so right. he can. Yeah, we'll, be uh, we'll we'll put that up at the uh, Facebook page and yeah, uh, cool. the Patreon page, so people can uh, dig into that as well. I'm having a uh, meeting with John after this, so we should have some <laughs> move it on. Yeah, have some info. It sounds great. Yeah. Uh, that sounds exciting as well. I love that so much. Uh, how mapped out is the Homebrew Vampire Bullets universe? Because uh, uh, as of uh, this recording, there's one episode to go of Better Call Saul and the creators there have been very honest in saying that they can only see a few inches in front of them, uh, which is amazing for the way those stories oh, are yeah, so absolutely. concise. Uh, uh, but you already have this as three volumes. Is that right? That's correct. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. And is, uh, that, is that it, or so I mentioned the the flow chart, which obviously doesn't look how the these three volumes have panned out. And there is a volumes four to six are sitting in the Scrivener app, which is what I used to write because you can sort of just move chunks around without right. and sort of just see how they fit within the story without having you know word just. I can't understand how someone could write a, anything of length in Word. Right. But Scrivener is a really great app for just having each chapter as a separate entity and you can sort of reshuffle and look at how things work, do colour right. coding and things like that. So there's probably 25,000 words of the next three volumes right. sitting there. Um, so these first three will come out quarterly from October yep. uh, into April next year. Yep. And then... I've got a bunch of things that I might turn into prequel <laughs> novellas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just just shorter pieces that I think are fun. Um, and then work on fleshing out the next four, uh, sorry, three volumes as it happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty dis- <clears throat> disrupted couple of years, obviously. Um, so writing hasn't been happening, but sort of getting these into shape has been happening. Yeah. Hopefully that sort of will even itself out. It's <clears throat> uh, part Here of we go the next year. Yeah, well, that'll yeah. help out. Yeah. But part, part of the, the writing process is the ebbs and flows of it. And it's yes, like exactly. you, you get on real rolls and then there's times where everything's just a little bit hard. And it's a, they're the parts that you have to push through. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's been, I think, getting these into the best shape they can be has been the opportunity this year. Yeah. And getting them out there. And, you know, lucky enough to have the time and, you know, resources to make all that work. Yeah, and right. yeah, then return to it. Um, yeah, there might be. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, thinking about it, like I think I've got a drawing of Ed von Satan from like 2002 that I might have done. Yeah, the project, and some you know, the, many of the other characters have gone through different iterations from yeah, early university, and it's just then mapping out what the story was going to be. And it was, you know, basically taking all my obsessions of you know, music, outback, the outback politics. Yeah, um, and just marrying everything together with a story that's set around corruption, politics, and you know, the end of the world. Um, yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, seems like uh, the and world in, caught up to you as well. And internet, interdimensional warfare, those sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, all the usuals. Yeah. Uh, the the inner sleeve uh, writings for the albums made me very nostalgic for days when you'd sit down and you'd read the cover while listening to, you know, a new album or something like that. And especially concept albums. Concept albums were the perfect yep. sitting, listening, reading, uh, looking at the artwork experience. Uh, do you have a favourite concept album? Because I have one. You go first. Do you want me to go first? Yep. Yep. 
Uh, I fucking love Kisses the Elder. <laughs> the the album that is pretty much the album that finally sank the first iteration of Kiss. Like, you know, they were already losing fans with their disco-infused We're all pretty dynasty. average musicians. Let's try and do a... But the concept, it, it makes me laugh every time I listen to it. It makes me laugh that uh, you probably remember the cover. It's a... Close up of a of a door with the a door, door handle yeah. and a hand yeah. reaching out to knock on it, like that was the cover. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, when you listen to it, it's really entertaining. I'm have to go back and give it a listen after this. Actually, yeah. like I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying it's really entertaining. <laughs> uh, mine actually ties into this. Uh, about a decade ago, I was doing starting the anthology that was <clears throat> the precursor to this. Yeah, and there's a guy called a guitarist uh, um, animator called Brendan Small yep. who was doing a TV show called Death Clock on Adult Swim, which was about, yep. funnily, you know, a extremely um, badly behaved death metal band. Yep. And he was writing all the music for it and doing all, and, you know, they were, it lasted about a decade, although I don't think there were like that many seasons of it. Right. Um, but it was parodying the music industry, really funny. And there's, like a, there's going to be a movie soon, I believe. Yeah. Um, and he released a album called Galacticon in 2012 that is not related to Death Clock, but takes his, he's got phenomenal music, musical skills. And it's sort of a melodic, Queen-inspired death metal intergalactic space opera. Great. <laughs> And it's about a guy called Triton, who's like the greatest hero of the universe, trying to get over his divorce. Amazing. <laughs> over, you know, 12, 12 amazingly technical <laughs> songs. Yeah. Um, and there's a song called Arena War of the Immortal Masters that actual, actually sort of started the ball rolling on all of this uh, for the initial comic that I drew um, with the writer Christian Reed. Yeah. Uh, for that first issue of the anthology. Um, and yes, to, the, to this day, great fucking album. Really fun. Yeah. There's a comic that came out that sort of fleshed out the universe as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not a cool concept album. It's not like going, you know, something from the 70s, but it's definitely a a very, very, uh, yeah, it, it inspired a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. That sounds like fun as well. You know yeah. what you've uh, made me remember is uh, I have a... Somewhere in my files, I have a my version of a book that I wrote when I was in primary school yep. that is heavily uh, inspired by um, by the Kiss album. And now I'm suddenly thinking, and it, like it's it's got illustrations, and this will tell you the era. It's got shadings. Remember when you yep. would draw heavily with pencil on a bit of paper and then you'd make these nice shadings? And uh, I can't remember the title of it, but I'm now suddenly thinking. Maybe I, no, I think I know where it is. I'm no, even more so. I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I'll record that and have audio yeah. producer Sean Allen go nuts and we'll do that. Uh, I think it was called something like Zardon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do that for Beautiful Tales for the Disenchanted. <laughs> Tune in each week for the next chapter of Zardon. <laughs> Zardon, <laughs> something I, like that. I remember creating like without knowing it was actually a. Uh, a a Rob Liefeld-inspired comic called Hardware in about yeah. 1991. Yeah. And then DC released one called Hardware, and I was like, That's right. ah, yeah, on the finger on the pulse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by, the, by the way, have you, uh, just as a little side note, have you seen that guy that 
takes the Watchmen comic and turns it into Rob Liefeld illustrations and improves it, and it's really funny. Like it's it, it's it's hilarious. Like right, the, what no. what he does. I'll share the link with you after. Yeah, cool. It's it, yeah. <laughs> it. You think you you get the joke after a while, and you go, oh, yeah, I see what you're doing, and then it pops up on your Twitter feed, and you go. Nope, still funny. <laughs> still really funny what you're doing. Alan Moore's just like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like he probably being in his coffin. In his, no, uh, I think he. I think he'd probably appreciate this. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? He... Um, well, on that note, um, Grant Morrison's Doom Force. Yes. Yeah. Like, which was the sort of quintessential early '90s piss take of. Oh, so funny! <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> Uh, so a few more questions. Uh, which of the albums in the book would you love to hear made into a real product? Uh, <clears throat> it probably says a lot about me, but I had heaps and heaps of fun writing the lyrics to Ed Von Satan's Wilderness Years yep. country albums. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> which is sort of inspired, you know, growing up in out there, you know, you'd go to the service station, it'd be like, you know, half a dozen tapes at the Yunta servo and it would be kevin bloody wilson Rodney yeah. rude yeah there's a guy that's definitely uh um a dutch guy who was doing awful racist stuff but it was out there you know yeah we, we know who we're talking about uh right. but like all that stuff was in the in the ether i guess at the time and yeah i just love the idea of like though that being an album with all the, yeah. you know, those lyrics um and it, I think that was initially inspired by, I went to a party with an old school friend years and years ago with a, a group of mates who were in a band and getting to his backyard, we're like, great, got some beers. Uh, what have you got in your stereo, Ash? And he goes to his car, he's like, I've got two tapes. I've got Kevin Bloody Wilson. Amazing. Uh, and I've got, yeah, he's got King Billy Coke bottle. And we're just like... Holy shit, man. This is the breadth of your musical. Wow. <laughs> wow. Just sat there in stunned silence. Um, he didn't need any more. He was fine. No, he, he, was had good to go. he had all the CDs, all the tapes. Yeah. <laughs> he had all of them. Uh, without giving away too much uh, with what happens in this volume, can you give us an idea of where the next volume will take us? You are going to get uh, South African mercenaries who have been yep. deployed by the self-help cult, uh, the Arcadia Trust, to retrieve their extremely drug-fucked uh, president. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get uh, an under-10 fight club Yep. in Outback Australia. Yep. <laughs> and we're going to pay a visit to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Great. Finally. <laughs> All Finally. in one volume. <laughs> to see a, uh, yeah, to see a, uh, a show that's uh, inspired by a lot of the shit that I was seeing at university. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I love all of this. Uh, and so most importantly, where can people find volume one of Homebrewed Vampire Bullets? I will be selling this digitally and uh, print on demand. And at this day and age, it doesn't really make any difference. Uh, I got my copies of the latest um, version in three days. Uh, right. So they turn them around quickly and really good quality. Uh, you can go to homebrew. Uh, sorry, you go to pastheamel.com forward slash homebrewed. Yep. And there'll be plenty of stuff up there. Links definitely around the time this comes up. Comes yep. out. Uh, there'll also be a special edition cover that's been drawn by the <clears throat> increasingly hard to actually pin down Simon Sherry, who's a fucking amazing graphic designer and illustrator. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't take many freelance jobs now because he's too busy making multi-million dollar Kickstarters for fantasy games. Yep. So I was very lucky to get Cy. 
And that looks great. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he said it to me. I was like, oh, that's actually not what we talked about, but that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's, that's a real artist when they yeah. kind of disregard what you have to say and, and, just and like, no, nail no, no, it no, better. No. Whatever. No, no, Garth, you're wrong. Yeah. And weirdly enough, I've got someone doing marketing as well. So if anyone wants uh, me to come on their podcast or do anything, you know, to promote the book, uh, you can yeah. contact Anthony at sodaandtelepaths.com. Yeah. And he'll sort you out. Get you I believe out he there. some presents too, didn't he? He did. He yeah. did. The package was fantastic. Very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> nice the, not doing that stuff. Well, the, the package was also it reminded me of uh, back in the day when I first started doing stand-up and you would, you know, you wouldn't just send out press releases. You'd send out badges and stuff like yeah, that yeah. to get noticed. So uh, it very much. Back. Yeah. 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 It made me feel very nostalgic, actually. <laughs> so, uh, well, it's a it's a really fun uh, read, and uh, I, I churned through it. And as I said, I was enjoying all the bits and pieces and the way it changes up the storytelling and the and the reports. And then you, there's nothing better in a in a book that you're enjoying, and then looking at an advert and going. I'm 99% certain this is bullshit, but this advert looks very much like something that I recognise. So maybe maybe this does exist. So Hang on a minute. Yeah, that's always fun. So uh, congratulations on the first volume. And, Glad you enjoyed uh, it. I'm looking forward to uh, this next volume, especially now that it's, you know, going to the Art Gallery of New going South Going to the Wales. Art Gallery is, yeah, probably the, yeah, the pinnacle. Yep, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's what I've been waiting for. All right. That's, yeah, that's Johnny Platinum going to the Art Gallery too, so nothing can go wrong. No, no, exactly. All right, thanks, Garth. Cheers, Justin. Thank you to Garth for hanging out with me today. Uh, we already have our next movie for Pass the Ammo worked out, and I'll tell you what it is. It's a movie called Stunt Rock. Yes, that's a real title to a real Aussie movie. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, maybe even just look at the trailer. And I'm not going to tell you anything else about it, but it, it's bonkers. Like, it's honestly bonkers. And it made me laugh so hard when he suggested it. Uh, in the meantime, head to parsiamel.com to order homebrewed vampire bullets. And there's also an extremely limited edition with a cover by the mad king of mongrel punk illustration, Mr. Simon Sherry. They're only $10 plus shipping for these versions. There's not going to be a digital version of this book. And what I'll do is I'll put the cover up at the Big Squid Facebook page so you can check it out. I'll be back on Thursday with musician Nick Kennedy, and then next week we have our first Space Podacy of the season with Ben Elwood. So looking forward to getting Ben back onto the podcast. Uh, a quick plug for people living in Sydney and Melbourne, I'm bringing my first stand-up show in three years to your cities, and I'd love to see you there. My Big Squid listeners get a discounted ticket, so make sure you use the promo code to secure that. Uh, head to bigsquidpod.com. Head to the blog section and you'll find an entry about my live shows that have all the details for your city. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to announce some other cities too. We've been talking to a couple of other places, so hopefully we can tick that off the list as well. Thank you for listening and spending time with me here. It is always appreciated to have your company. Until then.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.